0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the Middle Club Satellite Technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Hi Ed. Yes, I am well, thank you, at the moment. Touchwood not Mm -hmm. exhibiting any symptoms and the days are getting lighter and longer so I feel pretty chirpy.
0: Mm, Yeah uh, like you're alluding to there you know it's only been two weeks uh, since we last spoke as uh, Roiksock didn't sink but they nearly (laughs) sank. I was just thinking the other day about how I bought Epley by Roy Sop at the Virgin Megastore in New York City in like 2002 and just got very nostalgic both for that album and for just that Virgin Megastore because it was massive and cool. They really so that's were, the the it. <laughs> but, uh, Yes, uh, you know, it's been two weeks since we last spoke on, on this podcast and in that time it seems like an awful lot has happened um, in terms of the coronavirus which went from being something that was kind of a fringe concern in some ways it was something that everyone was kind of aware of and was aware could be quite bad and it has kind of really accelerated in the last week not in the sense that you know it's become like incredibly deadly and like contagion although everyone seems to be using it as an excuse to write about contagion um and to really get the clicks in But because in that time we've seen a lot of effects on it and and some of that is on the entertainment industry just yesterday on the day that we're recording South by Southwest was cancelled. The Austin kind of film and music and multimedia festival that it was due to start on the 13th and runs for two weeks has uh, been cancelled because of cases in Austin and just general concerns about you know, having hundreds of thousands of people coming to the city from all over the country and all mm-hmm. over the world. Wow. And potentially, you know, someone having the coronavirus, it's spreading to a bunch of people and then taking it back. The Cannes Film Festival is currently still going ahead, but there have been murmurs about it possibly being cancelled because France has been encouraging all of these big events to, that are forthcoming over the next couple of months to cancel and the window for that has started to cover the Cannes Film Festival. No Time to Die has been delayed until November, the Bond film that was meant to come out in like four weeks' time or something. It's been very interesting seeing the ways in which this has had like a real tangible effect on all of these kind of big media rents and all of these huge industries having to react to this in a way that I can't remember happening for, you know, the, the swine flu or the bird flu or SARS, you know, those those kind of, the big possible pandemics of, of my lifetime.
1: First, I have to say, if you want clicks, write about Cloverfield, you cowards. I can't stop <laughs> thinking about blood pouring from Lizzie Kaplan's face <laughs> since I saw it when it came out. Secondly, yeah, I think it's interesting to (laughs) this is going to sound probably quite morbid ed but it's such (laughs) it's just the most immense leveler you realize that everyone's actually just this vulnerable sack of (laughs) flesh and bones and germs and bacteria and all of these viruses are actually the ones that run the show (laughs) on earth um so it's like well you know even even the great glittering glorious of Hollywood and the zenith of stars across the world are still human beings susceptible to viruses. So there's a weird kind of, oh yeah, this isn't like how 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 are we all protected class. I, I'm still thinking about parasite, obviously. Um mm-hmm. but also it's just I mean, it's gonna be such a I don't want to say interesting because I don't want to sound as if I don't care and that I'm somehow removed from it,
2: but Mm.
1: because the way already that coronavirus has been affecting the global economy and what it will do to some people's actual livelihoods, like in terms of who will get the virus and have a bad time of it health wise. I mean, that's, that's terrible, but in terms of livelihoods and people's a different sense of survival, in, in the storybook that we are constantly living called, called uh, Unregulated Capitalism and Neoliberalism, like the dent that that's going to take and what that will do to the film and TV industry going forward over this, mm. over this year because it is such a delicate balance of things in various different stages of production. And, I mean, in terms of no time to die being postponed until November, horribly that is plenty of time to die.
0: Yeah, I think there was an article I was reading the other day where you know it was discussing. or it would have to been yesterday because that was when it was announced that South by Southwest was was not going to happen. Where they were talking about just the amount of money that the local economy economy will lose because it's around three hundred and fifty million dollars for the Austin economy for all of the. Stuff you expect like hotels, vendors, people renting space, people renting rooms, people catering, all of this sort of stuff. And so it's an act of immense civic responsibility for Austin to to announce, you know, a local disaster as as it's described. And to say this event cannot go ahead because even though it's going to adversely affect a lot of people and a lot of businesses and it could have this like real like seismic impact on the local economy, it's just not worth the no. risk that it poses to people's health and it's nice to see people kind of like taking those sort of steps uh but at the same time like, like you say for an event like South by Southwest which is such a huge event for writers and critics as well who you know lots of freelancers will go to South by Southwest to see things and then pitch stories to places it can be a hugely beneficial thing to uh to people who often have fairly precarious finances Mm, you know that they can you know use one trip and this is doubly true for can, you know you can take one trip that maybe you pay for yourself to, to provide you with material and stories that you can sell to cover you for the next like six months to a year and it's you know it's really terrible to see the effects of that of that happening and and it does you know a lot of people have been talking about this in the Uh, in terms of, you know, the ongoing uh, travesty that is the American healthcare system. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the fact that a system that doesn't provide people with universal healthcare and doesn't allow for people to take several weeks off sick if they need to, or that doesn't have, in a lot of industries, doesn't have, you know, things in place to say, hey, you know, people can work from home. It really demonstrates how precarious a lot of people's lives are (laughs) in a way that i think is there all the time but you know it becomes even more apparent when you realize that oh if these whole industries shut down you know people there are lots of people who just cannot afford to lose you know a week or two weeks paycheck they cannot afford to go to the doctors it's uh yeah like you say it really does underline just the, some of the really awful things about modern society and yeah. the way the world works.
1: Pretty much. Yay.
0: Mmm. In nicer news, Kids in the Hall are coming back.
2: Hey! Um,
0: yes, only 90s kids will remember. <laughs> uh, kids in the Hall, obviously, the Canadian comedy group. I was going to say Troop, but no. Ah, group, but I just troop. Boop. I just... <laughs> yeah tr- troops to me just always sounds like really pretentious <laughs> just kind of like it's like the comedy group consisting of uh, dave foley mark mckinney bruce McCullough, kevin mcdonald and scott thompson who have worked together on and off for you know 30 years at this point had a show that aired on I think the original show aired on HBO and NBC in the 90s and uh, late 80s, early 90s. And then, you know, they've all had their separate careers. They've occasionally come back together to do specials and tours or to uh, they they did a, a mini series called Death Comes to Town about 12 years ago at this point, which was kind of like them doing a narrative series. So it's not like they haven't been working together in this time, but this is the first time they've kind of come back together to do presumably to do sketches and the sort of thing that, you know, kind of made them much beloved of comedy fans particularly you know people who grew up watching their stuff in the in the 90s or in my case kind of discovered them in the early days of YouTube where people would upload dozens of their sketches and I'd be like oh what's this sketch with Dave Foley talking about how Jesus was a terrible carpenter <laughs> and just kind of <laughs> falling down a rabbit hole of watching all of their their great sketches and yeah like I'm I'm very uh, excited about it I at the same time you know there's always that worry when people kind of return to a thing that they haven't kind of been doing for a while and that it will be kind of like stale and tired and they won't have the edge, but at the same time, I just love all of those guys so much. And I love the stuff they do together that I'm just really pleased for them <laughs> to kind of be cashing those that big HBO paycheck.
1: I'm stoked for them as well. And I have to say they were not the people I had on my bingo card as to who would be making <laughs> a reunion comeback. Mm. And I think the thing about kids in the hall is that their style is, I think, just really funny and quite benevolent.
2: That mm, they're not,
1: yeah. they're not trying to pull as many gimmicks or tricks or be too edgy. I think there's something quite wholesome about them, and that they just go for what they feel is funny, um, mm. and in a way that is still very them. I'm, I'm not trying to say that they're like generic because they're not, but it's not like they they sort of don't really have much of that kind of shock or like, they're not massively disruptive, right? I think they're just quality. And mm. I am thinking to Netflix with Bob and David. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Which wasn't Mr. Show, but had a very Mr. Show feel to it in how the sketches ran on into each other and would build... And obviously that's more of a Bob Odenkirk and David Cross thing, right? Rather than Mr. Show specific. Mm-hmm. And that felt very hit and miss. miss. Um, as all sketch yeah. shows are, but like compared to Mr. Show. And I would wonder if it's because they weren't actually doing anything too different. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so we'll see. But I think they're funny guys. I think Yeah. It'll be. But it would still yeah. be nice to see some more, uh, you know, and this isn't kids in the hall, kids in the halls' fault. That sounds a bit grammatically. You know what I mean. <laughs> it's not that group, nay troops' fault. Um, but it would be lovely. As much as it's great to see people come back and do stuff, you know, in terms of HBO's comedy that they're funding originally. I know Netflix is the behemoth in terms of specials, but like, it'd be it'd be nice to have, you know. Do- <laughs> be nice to have some more women and people of color i i, I know that's like my catchphrase but i'm gonna say it again <laughs> like
0: mm. well they did do recently they did um hbo aired a black lady sketch show yes which, which is was... a, which is
1: amazing but it yeah. and, but i think what's brilliant about that title is it's a black lady sketch show it's not mm-hmm. the black lady sketch show <laughs> yes <laughs> there can yeah. be room for <laughs> um which is brilliant but more please thank you
0: yes mm. And also, as as much as, you know, they clearly, you know, put a lot of uh, money into that show and, you know, kind of, like, got the talent for it, it didn't feel as if that was one of the ones they really pushed
1: no, as they weren't, much they weren't,
0: as a lot of their stuff.
1: They weren't behind it. And again, like, and I don't know, obviously, whether it's the group themselves who wanted to call it that. But again, like, Kids in the Hall, there is still this freedom in terms of, like, being able to call yourself Mr. Show and everyone will assume it's two white guys, right? You don't have to say
2: mm. a
1: white guy sketch show. It's still, mm-hmm. you know, and it's tricky because how how do you, because there's nothing wrong with literally describing yourself, but yeah. but within the greater context, how can it be anything other than tokenistic? Mm. I've realised I've turned yeah. the nice thing into something, into a ramble, into <laughs> me being flumped head. Sorry, that's my magic alchemy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's your versatility.
1: Oh, uh, that's a beautiful segue!
0: Yes, so this week's episode we're going to be talking about versatility, and this is inspired by uh, going to see uh, The the Invisible Man, the Lee wan film that's uh, just out recently, uh, which is uh, absolutely terrific. I think uh, people should absolutely go and see The Invisible Man if you haven't seen it. It's a very, very good thriller and one of the reasons it's very, very good is because of Elizabeth Moss, who plays the lead. And one of the things about it, as I was leaving, I was kind of thinking about, you know, Elizabeth Moss's career, because this is pretty much the first this is the first like big movie that she's ever led she's obviously had supporting roles in in large-ish movies and she's been the lead in a handful of indie movies but this is like this felt to me like oh this is like a big watershed moment for her and I was starting to think about her career and like listing off her credits in my mind of the things that she'd done and I realized that I had completely forgotten to include Mad Men in her Uh. credits as I was listing them off I was thinking like oh yeah she was in the West Wing she was in Girl Interrupted very early in her career and then she did Handmaid's Tale and then I just skipped it. And it's not because she's forgettable in that role. She's absolutely incredible. Like her role uh, work as Peggy Olson's is like one of the best performances on television of the last two decades. But it was literally because she is so good at disappearing into all of her roles that I had literally just been forgotten that that was her, that it wasn't just, oh, you remember how there was that character Peggy Olsen who was apparently a mm. person <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> um, and so that got me thinking about about versatility in general you know like actors who are able to do all these different things disappear into these characters and what it means in relation to stardom and then when i pitched that to you as the topic for this week you then also pointed out and you know i hadn't i hadn't thought about this but you know one of the big memes on twitter recently has been talking about people who have the range you know people who are able to do a lot of different things like i thought oh yeah like there, there definitely seems to be a a moment at the moment for people celebrating people with that level of versatility so i thought it'd be interesting to kind of interrogate the notion of of versatility as it relates to uh, to kind of performers also you know broader uh, artists in general as well because obviously there's a lot of versatility in being a director as well
1: mm. it's the moment's moment and that meme on twitter i think is one of the most wholesome ones thus far because Mm. it's people just celebrating actors for the sake of their ability. Yes. And it doesn't feel as maybe you could call it like, sort of like activism slant or combative as not that long ago where we had the flip of the gender flip. You know, Amy Adams could... (laughs) Could be in the Hurt Locker, but yes. Jeremy Renner couldn't be in Julian Julia.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Which I think made a very important point well and somewhat pithily. But this is just quite wholesome. It's just like, you know, Octavia Spencer, look at what she can do. But the core of that, the core of how that meme works is saying that the core principle of good acting is versatility, is range. And I Mm -hmm. think it's always impressive. Like, I've been thinking a lot about Jake Gyllenhaal, as I have been since I was about 13, let's be honest. But (laughs) in a more um, critical way, shall we say. Mm. Because I was super stoked about John Mulaney coming back to um, SNL, as as you and I have discussed, Ed, as him hosting again. And he was doing the rounds, obviously, promoting, which is hilarious because I feel like they're all just going between various different studios and and catching up with old friends as he did with jimmy fallon um Mm -hmm. and there is a brilliant clip um from that where they're also reminiscing about a wonderful snl writer called andrew Steele. and there's something quite nice about seeing two people who used to work together and really get on still talking about a place with fondness anywho slight tangent he also talks about how he got Jake Gyllenhaal to be Mr. Music in the Sack Lunch (laughs)
2: Punch. And he watched, um,
1: he watched Okja and he was like, oh, (sighs) that guy just wants to go mad. He just wants to go off. Like, let's get him and let him be crazy because he clearly wants to be crazy and he's doing crazy really well. And I really like that Jake Gyllenhaal at this point in his career is like, oh, Nightcrawler, you've seen nothing yet. Like, (laughs) I will be totally... I will be breaking out and bouncing off the walls in every press junket I do from now on. Like you've, you've seen the true colors. And I think it's that thing of him sort of developing a, like a, um, a reputation for first of all, being like the sort of soft indie boy and then moving into much more kind of like, you know, dramatic leads and then coming back round mm. to being like, oh, I've kind of earned enough stock or or I'm able to make my own choices. And a lot of them are very crazy. But it's impressive to see an actor and think, oh, you can do a lot of different things. I think that's just quite a simple, straightforward um, appreciation.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think... Uh, and also the, the the thing i like about the range meme is it gave me the opportunity to post as i often do because it's my favorite bit on twitter just the picture of the guy's face from the coolish Off effect video and just posted that four times because <laughs> 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 uh, i i am i'm funny but only in a pretentious way um, <laughs> but yeah i think and gillenall's a really great example of that because there is such a fascinating arc to his career like you said you know he goes through the period of being kind of the, the soft indie boy then he kind of tries the big budget thing for a few years where you see him in the day after tomorrow where he's kind of what i you know you could argue about who the lead is in that but he's certainly one of the key players in that and then kind of bottoms out a little bit with prince of persia which was a big you know movie that made a lot of money but not enough for how much it cost um <laughs> yeah, and definitely not not fit for the current age. <laughs> Some of the choices in that film. <laughs> it was a it was interesting seeing like, you know, he he tried that and there was clearly a very conscious decision on his part to not do that again. That was clearly not work that he found particularly interesting, even though he has, obviously, you know, the matinee idol looks and he can get hench as he likes in order to be in, uh, Mm. you know, kind of those sort of roles. But, you know, just four years after that, he's slimmed down to a distressing degree for Nightcrawler. And since then, you know, he's not really flirted with the mainstream in any kind of way since then he's been very much focused on i except for i guess that the, the spider man movie he made last year but even then you know that's a a villain role and that's also something that's probably like a one-time gig for him as opposed to you know signing up to be in a million batman movies or something mm. um so it, it, it there's a very interesting case of someone's versatility really helping to establish them early on in their career and then sustaining them once they realize you know that once they've had the chance to try a bunch of things and realize that yeah maybe the big blockbuster stuff is not for me maybe that's something i should leave to other people who really kind of get a charge out of that sort of stuff one of the kind of the questions i wanted to kind of pose to to you and to discuss in this is um do you think that versatility is somewhat overvalued or uh, as a a concept because to me when I think of like versatility it's it's generally considered to be something that's very positive and you know a great attribute and I think for actors it generally is but at the same time there is that flip side where someone can like try to do like a bunch of things and not be very good at most of them (laughs) and it ends up kind of like hurting their career like um if you look at someone like a Someone like a Kristen Stewart, for example, who I think is a a terrific actor Mm -hmm. and has done some amazing work, but there was a period where, you know, like post-Twilight, after she'd had all this success, where they kind of tried to slot her into a lot of different kinds of movies and none of them really fit what she is good at. You know, what she's good at is being, like, in Olivia Seas movies or or, like, being someone who is this incredibly internalized performer who can really kind of like draw you in if you'd put them in something that's big and pulpy like snow white and the huntsman Mm -hmm. then in a kind of big sci-fi spectacle they can kind of get a little bit lost and i feel like you know like the flip side to people being like oh like versatility is really great is like people will denigrate the you know by uh implication the career of someone like a uh, a Cary Grant who has like bits of you know kind of variation in what he did and like you know he was in a bunch of different kinds of movies over the course of his career but like the key to why Cary Grant was a great movie star and a, and a great actor was that he very early on in his career figured out okay this is the this is the key that I need to hit and I can modulate a little bit around it but what really works is for me to be kind of like kind of charming and affable and daffy and you know all the sort of stuff that he was amazing at
2: Mm.
1: I think the virtue of versatility splits into two forks one of them is genuinely like this is incredible that this person can bring out this huge different array of emotions and match different Mm. tones like you look at someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we were talking He's about. He's on my
0: list. Yep, he right? was on my list.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, and and again, Adam Sandler, like two people I've been thinking about because they've been in my mind recently. These these are people who are like, oh, you you are quality. You bring quality to whatever you do, and they are versatile because now, off you know, off the back of like Punch Drunk Love, and people being like okay you know the film but but adam sandler is amazing and seeing this other dimension to him as a performer that he hadn't had the opportunity to before then maybe or or didn't find the story because i have an idea that like adam sandler probably had the idea i have a hunch that he had the idea already because he's a very he's a very canny man is that sandler Mm. classic virgo son anywho um (laughs) and philip seymour hoffman as well and the thing about the two of them is that yes, Adam Sandler's comedies are still very like you have a sense of the kind of character he's going to play, but there's there's still a bit of variation in them. And with Philip Seymour Hoffman, he again, like you were saying about Elizabeth Moss, he was someone who managed to be such a chameleon, even though you'd think he is actually very distinctive as an everyman. <laughs> like mm. And yet he did manage to just like kind of blend in and inhabit every role, which is incredible. But I think the dark side of versatility is it comes from a kind of hangover of the sort of, you know, the kind of factory settings of Hollywood Mm. back in the day where it was like, you needed to be all singing, all dancing, all acting, You needed to be up all the time. You would churn out these films. And even though you may be like in a certain genre or contracted to a certain studio, the idea was that they were using you as a means to an end and as a product rather than a person or an artist, right? The idea was that they paid for you and they needed their investment back. So you had to have this span of ability Um, And I think I see that in SNL as well because, of course, I'm always thinking about SNL on some level. Right up there with uh, with Jake. So when the two came together this week, what a delight Mm -hmm. for my brain. Anyway, is that the people who stay season after season, who get their contracts renewed, are people who have range Mm -hmm. or people who can do a lot of impressions. And this is why it's often very hard for black cast members Mm. because there aren't many black public figures because there there isn't a lot going on like even though in any sort of like family sketch of course then they will have an african-american family but that's why it's trickier for black players on snl because it's much harder to do impressions of (laughs) because guess what racism's still a thing it's institutional oh fuck but the people who who are able to do like either a lot of impressions or just deliver in various different ways. Like Kate McKinnon, I think, has been such a stalwart season after season in the modern mm. era because she can do a large array of impressions. She can be a play something sort of deadpan, or she can be really fucking nuts. Like she's got it all. And when you have that factory atmosphere, and you have that factory mentality, which is we need to put out a show at this time every week. We have this amount mm. of time to do it. And the writers will sit there and you read anything about SNL and they'll be like, well, we can give it to this actor because we understand what they can do. And it becomes a more sort of symbiotic process. Um, mm. So I think, yes, there is a there is art and skill to it. But then there is also a cold, hard economic side to versatility mm. that I'm not sure... I can't. I can't go all in and say, "Oh yeah, no, it's the." I think it's the zenith of all acting is to be incredibly is to have that range. Mm.
0: Remember when Fred Armisen used to play Obama on Saturday Night Live? Oh, that was fucked up, wasn't it?
1: God, that was not long ago at all. Oh, and it wasn't God. like he was
0: good at it either. No, he was
1: <laughs> terrible. Oh, that was a thing.
0: It yeah, just reminded me of that. It's like that was a thing that was allowed to go on for much too long.
1: <laughs> oh my god! Almost like the drone strikes Obama administered during his time in office. Oh. Hey-oh.
0: Mm. Uh, to to go back to um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think that he is he's very interesting because, like, I feel like the post Oscar part of his career, you know, he did kind of tend to gravitate to a certain kind of a certain kind of role which is like if you look at him in something like uh a most wanted man or synaptic new york or the savages you know these kind of roles that are like you say they're kind of every men they're kind of professionals they're people who are kind of like maybe ground down a little by the world like he mm. he has a certain kind of 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 quality to him I remember once when you and I were working at the showroom you said that I reminded you of Philip C. Hoffman because you saw me like walking into work one day and I had my I was probably listening to music and I had my like head down and it was raining <laughs> and I was just like a. there was a real kind of miserable quality, quality to me on that specific day um and you know that's kind of the thing I think that came to define him in his late years and then also there was a certain kind of like gravity to him because he was like yeah. you know kind of a lo- a large guy which makes it hilarious obviously that he won his Oscar for playing Truman Capote <laughs> mm.
2: um,
0: but you know if you look at the kind of like the period that in some ways really made his career that that really established him as like oh this is like one of the best actors of his generation which is like the the mid to late 90s there he is such a different actor in those years in terms of the roles that he was given a chance to try because you have him as like the obnoxious supporting character in twister you have him as the kind of like hilarious obsequious toady in the big lebowski Mm. you have him as the um i forget the character's name but kind of like the boisterous young playboy character that he plays in a talented mr ripley the same the same year that he's playing like the world's biggest empath in magnolia Mm. (laughs) like it's it's kind of incredible when you look at his career and you look at that period and you thought well, like, the, you know, obviously even his later in his later roles, he's still fantastic. You know, his performance in The Master is is really up there as one of the, the greats of American cinema. But when he was kind of like building up a resume and establishing himself as this character who was just, as this, as this character actor who could just be slotted into any movie and he could do pretty much anything and mm. he would sometimes be completely unrecognizable which is also why his relationship with paul thomas anderson is really fascinating like if you look at the five movies they made together yeah. his performances in all those are all so different like maybe the closest to two similar roles is like the small part he has in hard Eight and the role he has in punch drunk love as the villain yeah. where they're both kind of really really aggressive but um he's like a really great example of i think of how Versatility can be a real boon to someone early in their career mm. where you can build that reputation of being someone that people want to work with because a lot of different people will think, Oh, you know, I'd like to work like they, they you, you're not getting pigeonholed into just one kind of movie. Mm. Um, but that maybe you know, do you think that it's maybe not as much of a benefit to someone later in their career, like if someone becomes a star for doing a certain thing and then decides like late in their career I want to try something else mm. do you feel like maybe there's something of a, a tax or a punishment uh, levied against people for trying that because you know it could be very easy to alienate an audience
1: for sure I think it comes from various different aspects there's two there's too many factors essentially I think to say that If you try something different later on, then you'll immediately get pushback. I think Mm -hmm. just to come back to Phil, Phil CH for a moment, what his career showed me, I think, or what I took from it is that I think not only was he just the most staggering talent and dedicated and hardworking, he also had lots of people who believed in him Mm. and a work ethic, a stunning work ethic grown out of theatre and of a love for art, but a love for graft as well. Hmm. So we saw his range and his versatility because he always wanted to fucking work. And he clearly yeah. had an agent who believed in him and wouldn't go, oh no, that isn't for you, Phil. You know, there's clearly like, hey, do you want to try this? Why not? Along came Polly,
2: <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> and having similarly a director with, even though with a very specific eye and vision, even though it's applied to very different circumstances and genres, there's still a kind of sensibility um, Mm. to all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films that I think draws them together, not just steady cam shots, although that's lovely as well. And I think it goes to show that even though an actor appears as one person, there is a whole like economy around them and a kind of in the same way like let's use phantom thread for example (laughs) why on earth would you choose that example emily (laughs) you have the house of woodcock right you have reynolds woodcock but you have all these seamstresses you have cyril you have a muse like none of us are like islands in that way Mm. so i think when so i think then when it comes to actors making decisions in later years and doing things that they're not necessarily known for i wonder how often that comes from a place of vanity from a Mm. place of true curiosity and a and a desire to learn and to not just be known for one thing like to try and shake up their legacy I mean you look at someone like Gary Shandling who was so brilliant but then working with Mike Nichols and moving into films it just collapsed um Mm. I know that's more of a writing performing kind of mix but And again, kind of where was that in terms of people's egos? I think there's a lot of things that we can't necessarily gauge. Um, But from from audiences, audiences don't want to be bored. Mm. So I don't think they're against change per se. Like we look at Melissa McCarthy, for example, Like, like fantastic comic actor, also just a stunning actor, full stop. And I think it's interesting when comic actors, and again, we spoke about this a lot in terms of like SNL, but how they make, I think, often a smoother transition and a more surprising transition into dramatic roles and to just being known as actors, right, rather than comic performers or a member Mm. of the SNL cast. I think because there's a familiarity and then they're able to hit those darker moments so well. I think also it depends on this idea of, like, if you're too big for your boots, I think audiences can sense that. Because audiences Mm -hmm. also love schadenfreude and they will pelt tomatoes at you, right? Like, and I'm trying to think of examples, but I think it's more like from acting into music. That's when people really (laughs) raise their eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) There's a sideways step. They're like, oh, really? You wanted to be a rock star all along, whereas you're actually like an incredible actor. Um, Mm. I can't think of anything that has, where it's been like a really virulent pushback. And I think also like in the same way that there's, a sort of pro and a con or like a lighter side and a darker side to the idea of versatility. I think that's the same with being known for one thing because in one mm. in one way, in one flow, you could call it typecast, but in another, you could call it being a legend or a persona, like you were saying about Cary Grant. People aren't really interested in going to see Cary Grant to see him play, you know, to immerse himself into a character At that time, people went to see Cary Grant to see Cary Grant. And I'd argue that's the same for a lot of actors today. It's not actually about their ability to seem like someone else. It's their it's just them. It's kind of the way that they do something. I've been watching an awful lot of Andrew Scott videos on YouTube recently. Mm -hmm. And I think he says something really interesting about the role of Hamlet and how it's almost like a jar and then actors pour themselves into it. But it's a different mm. it's a different thing in the jar each time.
2: Mm, yeah,
1: and I think about that a lot in terms of like you know, and and him talking about like when we're talking about what we think the principles of acting are that you know the metrics that we use against to say this is good acting versus bad acting, just the sheer endurance of Hamlet. You've got fifty, mm. you've got fifteen thousand lines, and you're pretty much never not off stage for about four hours. <laughs> um so yeah there's endurance to it as well
0: I think in terms of you're you're right in in terms of like if you're trying to assess why exactly audiences may be sour on actors it can be quite difficult to kind of like narrow it down to just one thing it's like oh you know they tried one new thing and people didn't like it so you know it's clearly that people don't want versatility but I do feel like the example I thought of in terms of, like, an actor who tried something new and it, it, everyone was just like, no, please do not, don't do this, was uh, Tom Cruise with Rock of Ages, where oh. his his whole thing was, like, obviously it came at a somewhat uh, fraught time in his career uh, in general because I think he had, uh, he'd kind of come back from the kind of the post you know couch jumping even though he didn't yeah. jump oh. on the couch yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <you> know, like, <laughs> he, he'd, he'd come back from this kind of like period where he had been more of a tabloid um concern than necessarily a movie star even though he was still in movies and they still did okay there was still a sudden focus on you know him being a scientologist and all this sort of stuff and he had been in you know he'd been in the fourth mission impossible movie which had been a big success he'd been in oblivion which was kind of a modest success but you know clearly demonstrated how much of a draw he is that he took a movie that was not based on anything or not based on anything that anyone knew and made it into like a pretty sizable worldwide hit and all this sort of stuff and then he veered completely from what he was known for which is you know action sci-fi blockbuster to being you know this supporting character in this a terrible musical mm. um and that felt like one of those ones where the, the project as a whole was resoundingly rejected so it wasn't just him but like him being in it felt like such a big selling point like there was such this whole idea in the marketing and the ad campaign and, you know, the promotion for it of, like, oh, Tom Cruise is in this movie. He's playing this big, like, over-the-top rock star and he sings and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, people saw it and they're like, no, this is not, <laughs> not what, we what we want from Tom Cruise. This is not what we want from Thomas third. Um <laughs> This is, the, you know, we want you to be, Ethan Hunt, we want you to be in, you know, kind of, like, big... Uh, sci-fi blockbusters and all that sort of stuff, and you, know, he, he went back to it. But you know, earlier in his career, he also kind of had a similar inflection point where, you know, in the uh, Mark Harris wrote a big thing on this for the much missed uh, Grantland years ago, where they were talking about where he talked about you know the period of like three or four years where Tom Cruise really kind of pushed himself to try and get an Oscar, where you see him doing eyes wide shut and magnolia and um, you know like there was a this de- this definite period where he stepped away from this kind of run he was on where pretty much every movie he was in earned a 100 million dollars where you know in 1996 he was in jerry maguire and mission impossible which were like the like number two and number three movies at the box office in america that year like he was just on a tear and deliberately kind of like moved away from it and you know no one was expecting magnolia to make a 100 million dollars or whatever but like there was definitely a sense that he was playing with the persona that he had established and doing these different things with it and audiences like weren't really there he didn't get the awards attention he wanted from it you know obviously he was nominated for an oscar for magnolia but he didn't win and he's not really gone back to that well since like but the last time you could say he really tried that was lions for lambs which no one at all remembers um so there is there is definitely a I think there where there were two points in his career where he, as someone who is like very business savvy, very concerned with box office and the audience and you know giving people a good time, decided that audiences don't want this from me. I'm going to go back to doing the thing that people want. And, you know, he's made some great movies in that time. You know, I love a lot of the stuff he's done with the Mission Impossible franchise, I love Edge of Tomorrow. But like, it's hard not to look at that and feel like he was chastened by those choices, and that we maybe lost out on some really good roles as a result. Like the, they could have got some really good performances if he had said, "I've made enough money. I'm going to keep making <laughs> Paul. I'm going to keep making Paul Thomas Anderson movies."
1: Yeah, and it's not to say that he possibly won't return. I mean, Magnolia is often what's brought up when people say like oh but Tom Cruise can't really act he's just a star Mm. and it's like Mm. yeah but you see Magnolia though and you're like oh shit yeah actually fair point that's always like a kind of uh, pub counter a rich pub counterpoint um I find when in the discussion of Cruise and one that I always fall down on because I'm ambivalent about the man I think what I find interesting is this I think it's it's still going on a I can't see Olivia Colman doing it anytime soon, possibly, or or Renee Zellweger. But there has been a little flutter with, I'm thinking particularly Charlize Theron, Halle Berry and Brie Larson of Mm. a Best Actress Oscar winner also coming out with an action film at the same, is normally sort of around the same time. Because I'll never forget Halle Berry accepting her Oscar for Monsters Ball and her Razzie for Catwoman. (laughs) Which just made me think she's just the best sport, you know, like you break, you, 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 you break all, break records and make history by becoming the first African-American woman, you know, to win best actress. And then you also (laughs) turn up to collect your, um your prize and I think yeah so <laughs> I like I like Hallie, and and sort of and Hilary Swank not so much but anyway Charlize Theron for example was an Aeon Flux do you know I didn't remember it either I, it sounds like um something unpleasant that you need gone for but then she, she's gone on <laughs> to do like Atomic Blonde and like various other things but I think there's and I think maybe it's just kind of a quirk of timing and of how things get released but I don't think it's just down to coincidence that agents are like we're going to put you in for this big dramatic role, and make you wear skin tight clothing and and kick about, you know, <laughs> um, because I think also versatility, again on a sort of economic point, does get, will get you more stuff.
2: <laughs> you mm.
1: will you will get more roles if you can show that you can do more because there is there is money in that. There's more mm. scope. There's more scope. There may be still a little bit more sort of like cultural. And I think like going back to sort of like tom cruise as a star or not if you have enough star power it really doesn't matter
2: mm, and again Carrie yeah.
1: grant like if you are just people are just there to see you they'll watch you whatever you're in whatever you're doing and i think you're right like that tom cruise instance of rock of ages is is quite rare but also it didn't make a dent in his career he's fine yeah no. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he he adjusted clearly and thought, yeah, yeah, okay, that was that was a, a miss. That was a swing and a miss.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, of who is like who would you say is a star, like right now, in in that same ilk.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like the difficult thing, isn't it? Because, like, when pe- people like talk about someone like Robert Downey Jr. being like the highest paid actor. In the world, I think he still is. Like, um, I can't imagine that anyone would rival him, but I and he obviously has been in a bunch of the most, the highest grossing movies ever made. But I struggle to think of him as a movie star in that sense same. because there is like Tony Stark is the movie star, yeah. Like, he the, the character is the thing that's drawing people in, and he is he was great at playing the character, but like we saw with Doolittle there wasn't, like, that same dry desire for people to go and follow him to his next project. Although it still made, like, 70 million in the US or something, because there's at least enough of a curiosity factor, and, you know, it was the only thing for families that came out in ages after the Christmas period. But, like, it's hard to think of anyone, of of the newer generation, who really kind of fits that bill, like jennifer lawrence kind of but like she's not as much of a box office draw now as she was a couple of years ago i think in the immediate wake of the 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 hunger games you could clearly see you know her being the thing that drove like silver linings playbook to earn over a hundred million dollars or being part of the thing that made american hustle a hit you know there was there's a lot of that but it's that that was really just like a very small window in Mm. which you could say Jennifer Lawrence is, like, a bona fide movie star who can, you know, really carry a movie. Chris Pratt, I think, also kind of fits into that where, you know, he was in a bunch of really successful movies and he had a comedic persona that really seemed to work in a couple of projects, but, like, outside of big franchises, it's hard to say, you know, if you just put Chris Pratt in a big, like, original movie and said, hey, you know, are people going to see it? you there's like not a huge chance but you know and and you had that test exactly with the movie passengers which had both him and jennifer lawrence in and which um was terrible which didn't help maybe if it was maybe if it had been good you know it would have been a hit but just on the face of it you know you have two of the biggest names of this kind of like newer generation and neither of them are really able to kind of like pull the numbers in like really the only person i can think of just thinking now, like maybe a Tyler Perry, because yeah. he is someone who has built a pretty sizable audience for his work, all of it. <laughs> you know, this the, the move, the two or three movies he seems to make every year and the T V shows he's always working on and writing himself, like he's the only one who I can think of where pretty much whatever he makes, like fifty million dollars worth of people are gonna show up. Because yeah. he has found like a niche that only he is really kind of appealing to and giving something that they actually want. I feel like everyone else, it's really... IP is, like, the star for a lot of those kind of movies and less so actors.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think the interesting thing about Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence as well is that even though Chris Pratt has played comedy, but on TV, like... Mm -hmm neither he nor jennifer lawrence have been in a out and out comedy Mm. in terms of feature films but both of them have incredibly well-known charismatic comedic personas yeah and i think there's something interesting about being so out and bold with that as they're kind of like marketing interviewing press junket this is me i'm just a goofball Mm. strategy and being like incredibly dramatic where you're like, oh yeah, you're not like that all the time. Like that yeah. for some kind of depth. I mean, now Chris Pratt's gone very Uber, Uber, a certain type of Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but before that they were kind of larking about and people were like, oh yeah, you know, I like them. And I think that's it. Like the more sides you see to someone, the more an audience feels they know someone and they are simultaneously like, attracted to and feel safe with them.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: There's that parasocial thing going on as well, I think, which is very strong.
0: Yeah, I was just wondering if maybe that kind of thing, that kind of relationship between star and audience has maybe just migrated to YouTube.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because there is that sense of, you know, like YouTube stars who then not necessarily, you know, obviously it's not worked in terms of them going into movies, but you know, like YouTube stars get millions and millions of hits and you know if they appear on someone else's channel you know they can really boost them and that sort of thing like that seems to be more where that you know the 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 generation of of people now who are kind of getting into you know visual media and discovering art through through visuals uh, that's maybe where that relationship exists now and less so in terms of in less terms less so in terms of movie stars Mm. so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: it's a book I (laughs) know. old school (laughs) well sort of it is called pirate robot ninja okay an improv fable Yes, it's got a colon in it. It's got a subtitle. And it is written by um, the team of Billy Merritt and Will Hines, um, who are Mm. sort of graduates of UCB and teachers and improvers in their own right. Um, And I've only just started reading it. And I think it's really fun because it's less of a instruction manual. Um, So if if you've never done improv before... They do give a warning that, you know, they're not going to talk about the basics. Mm -hmm. But it's just quite a funnily written story because they've written it as if it's a fable. You are this kind of improviser seeking knowledge and you go to the dojo. So it's just a funny read. I think it's a really great insight and a nice way of trying to talk about people's skills and gifts without talking about... um, it's just focusing on what they're great at being aware of what those skills will do and, and what they may be not so great at. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting. I think even just, if you're looking to manage a group of people <laughs> and, uh, you're not trying to see some people as like, cause everyone's got their pros and cons. Right. We're all, we're all brilliantly helpful and uh, like terribly annoying all at once in teams. <laughs> But it's, it's written with a lot of humour. I think if you're interested in like SNL, UCB, anything like that, it's an absolute must-read because, again, it's just gleaning more, um, even more tips from people who are into that. Um, but, yeah, so I've only just started it, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Pirate, Robot, Ninja, an Improv Fable by Billy Merritt and Will Hines.
0: Cool. I really like Will Hines. <laughs> He's often on Comedy Bang Bang. Yeah. And... Uh, He was on an episode last year, which I think is like one of my favorite examples of someone really, you know, kind of an improviser just really following a thread to whatever ends it can possibly go to. Because he went on as like a doctor and then no one was interested in him being a doctor. So it ended up being just this kind of long digression in which he reveals that he became a doctor through like some sort of uh, going into like a... uh, a world of the mole people being forced <laughs> to fight for survival and it's, it's oh god, yeah people should check that out as well if you want to hear someone just really jump at the chance to completely create a backstory wholesale just to kind of like follow the whims of the other people in the room oh, um, I'm going to recommend a movie, I'm going to recommend the movie Upgrade, directed and written by Lee Wannell, who also directed The Invisible Man, which we mentioned earlier in the episode mm. this was his second feature he had also previously directed the uh third or fourth movie in the insidious franchise i want to say because he and james Wan are the kind of co-creators of saw so they've worked together a fair bit over the years Ah. but this was his first thing where he kind of really stepped out on his own and it really kind of he really hit it out of the park it's a really yeah, just an incredibly enjoyable kind of like sci-fi thriller starring uh, logan marshall green as a man who in this kind of sort of near future who whose wife is killed and he is left paraplegic he is kind of given the chance to walk again by a mysterious elon musk-esque scientist um who Get, you know, implants this AI into his body and then through that allows him to walk again and it kind of becomes this whole death wish thing where he's seeking out the people who killed his wife to try and figure out why uh, why they were attacked. But the thing about it that's really great is the relationship between him and the AI that's implanted into him, who he very quickly realises uh, not only can help him walk, but can take over his body and it becomes this kind of really interesting, like all of me style conflict between his body and the ai and what i really like about it is it's a movie that completely understands the possibilities of its premise because you know like most movies would take that premise and say okay you know we could make this as like this kind of like dystopian thriller about the notion of like our bodies being overtaken by technology we could make it this kind of like wrenching thing about a guy kind of like pursuing vi- uh, vengeance Uh all costs we could make it a comedy about this guy who's sharing his body with something else and it's a movie that basically says no we'll do all three pretty <laughs> much simultaneously and it kind of jumps in tones really well the action sequences are often incredibly exciting because you know he's got this kind of enhanced body that's absolutely destroying everyone around him and the camera is often used in very uh intricate ways to kind of disorientate the audience but because Logan Marshall Green's character is not in control of his body at the time, he's often stony faced and uh, often exhibiting completely diametrically opposed uh, emotions to what's happening in the scene, and so you can get these like incredibly exciting fight scenes in which he is just kind of a passenger along for, and it's really funny seeing his responses to these insane things that his body is doing. So yeah, so it's just like a hugely enjoyable romp. It's uh, like pretty much a perfect use of the Bloomhouse model because it was a Bloomhouse tilt uh production like made for like three million dollars but looks fantastic is like hugely enjoyable and really kind of makes use of its pulpy premise to make some really uh, exciting stuff so that's upgrade it's in the us currently i think you can watch it on hbo um, and it's also yeah widely available on blu-ray so yes uh, everyone check it out because i think that between that and the invisible man it really does establish lee bonnell as like a really exciting voice in genre cinema if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places rate us, reviewers and recommend to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me
1: and goodbye from me